The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Good afternoon and welcome, welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is your host, Michelle Jawando, part of the Leslie Marshall Show family. Always great to be with you on this lovely Thursday afternoon. A lot happening in the world. Can we talk about it? Um, and we're going to do a lot of that on the show today. Um, I'm excited because we have some great guests in studio um, who are going to participate in what I think is the one of the biggest conversations that need to ha- that needs to happen and doesn't. Um, but you know, I love hearing from you, so I'm hoping you give me a call and join in the conversation. That's eight 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 six five three seven five four three eight 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 six Leslie. You can follow the conversation online at Leslie Marshall on Twitter or at Michelle with one L Jawando J A W A N D O. So many of our regular listeners know that um, kind of. My day job is a member of um, being at the Center for American Progress, and I have the great honor and privilege, I tell people, to work with some of the smartest thinking people that I've ever had the privilege to meet. And this week, um, an article from one of our reporters here at Think Progress really stopped me in my tracks, and I thought it made sense to bring it to the Leslie Marshall family. This week, the Department of Education recently released some startling numbers about how much our country spends on prisons versus schools that added fuel to the fire of the national conversation about criminal justice reform. For many of our listeners, you know, we've been following the issues with Alton Sterling and Philando Castile and the tragic incidents in Dallas and then again Baton Rouge. And yet a lot of our conversation has been centered around just the criminal justice response. And what I thought could be really interesting is to bring in my next two guests, Casey Quinlan. She's the education reporter for Think Progress, and she tweets at that, T-H-A-T, Casey, C-A-S-E-Y, Quinn, Q-U-I-N. Casey, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being here. And last but definitely not released is Ulrich Boiser, who is a senior fellow here at the Center for American Progress, works on a, a number of issues, and he tweets at a uh, at U L R I C H B O S E R. Ulrich, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here. So, Casey, um, I appreciated that you started the conversation um, with kind of centering what's been happening right now. Um, you know, every every day we're seeing these images. Um, and yet, one of the comments that the president made, I thought, so eloquently at the Dallas Memorial for the officers is that there are issues that we're not talking about. We don't talk about um, the education system. We don't talk about what poverty has done. And yet all of that is somehow manifested in the way that people live their lives in these communities and we don't really acknowledge it. And I thought your your piece kind of touched on that a bit. Um, yes. I, what, what made me think about writing this particular piece was just... Um, 
you know, going on social media, seeing seeing a lot of folks uh, that were saying, you know, all lives matter, and uh, and and saying things about um, how, you know, poor white people are going through this and and that, and and sort of trying to center the conversation back on whiteness a bit, and so I thought it was important to talk about the specific things that the specific you know barriers that black students are are dealing with every day um, and how they're how they're different from even what a lot of um, low-income white students are dealing with now Oric, you spent much of your career kind of really focused on K through 12 and right now you're actually writing a book tentatively titled um, I'm gonna share with our listeners because I need them to pick it up um, learning to learn why being smart in the information age isn't important and why learning is and so you've done a lot of work really looking at the intersection between education and criminal justice um, why have you spent so much of your career there and are people starting to see these connections I think increasingly people really are seeing these connections. Mm -hmm. uh, it's easy to talk about these fields in very siloed ways, but we know that they're intricately connected. And we also know, you know, we have to also really understand that uh, what's happening in schools today, uh, many students are going through trauma. Uh, what we know from the evidence is that you know, our social side, our emotional side is very connected to how we learn and we need to feel um, like we're in a, a safe community in order to really achieve achieve to our, um, you know, uh, really what we're able to. And what we see is really, you know, differing expectations uh, for disadvantaged students. Uh, what we found uh, specifically in our research is that, you know, teachers have lower expectations for African-American students. They have lower expectations for Hispanic students. And we need to, to change those types of expectations to make sure that students are really ready for a career, that they're ready for college. And are we afraid to actually say that? Like, are we afraid to say that, um, you know, to your piece, Casey, you see ongoing school segregation and you raise the point just now that the expectations for even students of color um, are apparent and we see it in the data, but yet it's something that we're, we're almost not acknowledging. Yeah, um, definitely. I, I've certainly read a lot of pieces talking about disparities in student discipline and, um, you know, even even stories on uh, school desegregation that seem to be afraid to mention race directly and to mention why um, why student discipline is such a problem, to, to mention the school to prison pipeline specifically and to mention, you know, black students specifically in pieces um, as if student discipline and harsh student discipline is just sort of this thing that uh, this sort of exists outside of, of race, you <laughs> know, right. yeah. and obviously the application of it is not. So, you know, I think we need to be having these uh, conversations. Yeah, you know, just uh, a few weeks ago, I was speaking to a professor at uh, Columbia, Sheen Levine, and he, he made this, uh, had done a recent study which showed that more diversity is a great thing. And he looked specifically at stock markets and showed that stock markets, when uh, all the people look alike, act alike, are less effective, right? Mm -hmm. And then you can really tie that back to uh, diversity. Mm -hmm. And then I asked him about his classrooms at Columbia, and he said, you know, what he sees is even though he lectures each day about the importance of diversity, showing study mm -hmm. after study, 
people still in those classrooms, white students sit with white students, older students sit with older students, mm. men are more likely to sit with men. I think we have to acknowledge it at a, you know, at a very high level, diversity is really important, but it can sometimes make us socially uncomfortable. Mm. So what are we going to do as a society, uh, whether it's happening in schools, whether it's happening in our criminal justice system, to make sure that we engage with people who look different than us, that act different than us. And then we got to make sure that those programs and policies are really targeted to the people who need them most in our low-income communities. So this is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. I am excited to have in studio with me Casey Quinlan, education reporter for Think Progress, and Ulrich Boiser, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Um, Casey, one of the um, things that I've struggled with, and I and I've shared with um, our listeners, um, I'm the my husband and I pa- proud parents of three amazing little girls. I spent, grew up in New York, had amazing, amazing parents, um, went to private school until about eighth grade, and then went into a public high school. And I will tell you, my father was very involved in politics there. Um, The expectations were dramatically different when I went into high school. And then when I... Actually, when people figured out who my parents were, then expectations changed again. It was like, oh, we better do something about this student and make sure that she's getting the best that she deserves. When we come back after the break, I want to have a little bit of that conversation about expectations that we have for our children. Um the role of kind of parental engagement and how, you know, are we being responsive to everyone? Not every parent can come up to the school the way my parents could. And what does that mean for all of our children? This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back. This is Michelle Jawando on The Leslie Marshall Show. Always great being with you, and we're having a wonderful conversation, and we want you to join in. Give us a call at 888-653-7543, 888-6LESLIE, or you can follow along at Leslie Marshall or at Michelle Jawando. So back in studio talking about uh, kind of resegregation of schools and uh, education issues, I have in studio Casey Quinlan. She's an education reporter for Think Progress and Ulrich Bozer, who is a senior fellow here at the Center for American Progress. So, Casey, one of the stats in your recent piece um, really troubled me, and I'm sure our listeners will probably share the same. Um, So I'm just going to read. For example, according to the department's report, every single state, every single state spends less on pre-K-12 education than they do on corrections. And over the past 20 years, state and local spending on public colleges and universities have remained stagnant while spending on the prison system rose by almost 90%. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah that's um, that's very disturbing. Uh, yes, um, certainly. You know, it seems that um, you know our priorities are are not in, in the right place, um, and and that we can see that pretty clearly um, in our schools and the segregation of schools and the low quality of the facilities. Um, certainly, in Detroit, that's very clear. Um, you know, where teachers recently uh, protested poor school conditions, and you know there are photos all over Twitter of you know, dead rodents in classrooms and uh, spoiled food and um, and bathroom facilities that were not, you know, uh, they were just uninhabitable. So, you know, you know, these issues are, are very, should be very clear to us, and yet um, they just haven't really become a national priority, it seems. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we haven't really spoken about education a lot um, <laughs> in, yeah. in the debates. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and we really should because, you know, these numbers really lay out why that's so important. Now, you or you spent most of your career really looking at these issues. And I think to Casey's point, it often seems like education is one of those kind of what they say, oh, those are those kind of side issues, that they're not paramount. Um, and that we really haven't had a big national conversation around particularly K through 12 education. I think you're starting to hear more bubble up around student loan issues. Um, but do we have the political will to really fix this? The fact that we're spending more money on corrections than K through 12 should trouble most of us. But I don't know if we have the will then to take the next step and change that. I think that's a great question. And I think what Casey's laid out here is frankly terrifying. We have created a a prison to prison system. Mm -hmm. uh, And it's very clear about who is affected by this system. It disproportionately affects uh, families from disadvantaged communities. It disproportionately affects people of of color. And I think when you see this data said in such a stark way, uh, it should really build political will, one, to reduce uh, the prison complex that we've built in so many places Mm -hmm. and refocus that money on ways that's are going to be beneficial for students. And that means good school buildings, that means high quality curriculum, and that means each student should have a great teacher, a teacher who's engaged mm-hmm. with them mm-hmm. and can really give them uh, the learning that they need. So um, before we went to the break, I started to share kind of as a parent, um, I recognize that unfortunately um, some of the engagement that I have um the outcomes for my child vary because I have the ability, I have the privilege, I have the flexible job that gives me the opportunity to go to the parent-teacher meetings and to be there when it's like the mom day at school. We are setting ourselves up, though, it seems like with this bifurcated system, if you have the resources, then you can be involved in your school, you can be involved in the community, and there are better outcomes. But in the very communities that aren't in the position to do that because they're on an hourly job, they can't take off from school, maybe they don't have the means, the transportation system doesn't allow, those are the very schools that need it, and yet they get lack the less attention on these issues. Um, yeah, yeah, I've noticed um, certainly that um, there are some ways to try and get around some of these scheduling problems. Um, for instance, um, you know, some schools have worked on having, uh, you know, two separate 
um, you know, parent meetings, one that happens in the morning or at some other time, and one that happens like right after work when, uh, when a lot of these meetings are, are typically scheduled. So that sort of helps a little bit, but there's a lot more going on. Um, and, and part of that is that, um, you know, a lot of schools just don't have the incentive to really consider a parent community in a low-income area to be a stakeholder and to communicate with them. So that's, that's obviously, as you mentioned, a, a huge issue. Um, and then there's the issue of just, you know, within schools that seem diverse, you have, uh, you have students who are separating once they get into the school, mm-hmm. you know, through the gifted programs and the general education programs. And so that makes it difficult for parents to work together because they don't always have the same goals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my husband actually recently filed an OCR complaint against Montgomery County Schools um, because of um, what we we definitely see as an equity issue when it comes to the immersion programs. But I think also you can lump in there the gifted and talented and these specialized programs. So, again, you kind of create this kind of two-tiered system. Um, I am going to give you the Michelle Jawando magic wand, Ulrich. We're in the midst of a political campaign. Um, We have two candidates, one who spent much of her career talking about these issues. One, we're, I guess we'll find out. I don't know. Maybe. Possibly. Potentially. Um, And I wonder, if I give you the magic wand, what do you do day one to change the system as we know it? Yeah, if I had a magic wand, and let me tell you, I am really excited to hold this magic wand. <laughs> I'm glad I can bestow that upon I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> if I were uh, to hold the magic wand, I think we need to address um, this resegregation of our schools. What are we going to do to make sure that schools are more diverse? Uh, we can all learn a lot from each other. Um, and I think we've created these islands of schools, and that means islands of these schools in affluent suburbs uh, where they might as well be private schools and islands of schools um, in our inner cities where you have students who um, are almost entirely from the same background. And everything really follows from that. Money follows from that. Teachers Mm -hmm. follow from that. Mm -hmm. High curriculum follows from that. So I do think that that one issue uh, could really do a tremendous amount to improve our nation's schools. You have been a wonderful guest. I so appreciate you. If you want to stay in touch, please follow Ulrich on Twitter at U-L-R-I-C-H Bozer and Casey Quinlan, education reporter for Think Progress. Thank you so much for joining the conversation. Obviously, there were some callers we couldn't get to you today. We'll keep the conversation going. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back. This is Michelle Jawanto on the Leslie Marshall Show. Always great being here with you and love hearing from you. So if you want to engage in the conversation, give us a call at 888-6LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. And you know you can follow along on Twitter at Leslie Marshall or at Michelle with one L, Jawando, J-W-A-N-D-O. So you know a few weeks ago for our Leslie Marshall 
Marshall uh, regulars. I started on the docket, um, which is just a little segment that I'm going to try to do every now and then where I'll be talking about what do I love to talk about courts and judges and democracy and how we move this country forward? Um, you know, my day job at the Center for American Progress, I spent a lot of time talking about why courts matter. And um, I have been doing that in different iterations of my professional career. And our next guest I have worked with in different iterations of my career. <laughs> and um, But he has always been a great colleague, um, great friend, really smart. Mark Keen and is someone who is also committed to these issues of um, justice and fairness and making sure our judiciary works for all people and not some people. So I'm really excited to have in studio with us today Christopher Kang, who is the National Director of the National Council of Asian Pacific Americans. Welcome, Chris, to the show. Thanks so much for having me. And Chris tweets at Twitter, at Chris, C-H-R-I-S-N-C. A-P-A. So, you know, Chris, you have done quite a lot in your career. Um, right now, as the national director, you're working on issues around policy and communications on a policy agenda for the needs of the Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander communities. But you've been deputy assistant and deputy counsel to President Obama at the White House. Uh, you worked on the Senate, where I first met Mr. Christopher King, um, working for the assistant leader Dick Durbin, Richard Durbin from uh, Chicago. Well, I say Chicago, but it's the whole state, Illinois. And he's from Springfield. <laughs> He'll be the first one to tell you I he's know. from downstate. I know. I, I'm sure, like, Chicago and the downstate people, like, hate that. It's like Chicago. No, there's more there, actually, in the state. Um, but you've been working on these issues around judges and judicial issues for a long time in your career. Why? Why? Because a lot of people are like, why do you care about these things so much? Um, and I'd love to hear someone else who kind of nerds out with me in this space to share why you do it. Absolutely. And I think this week is a great time to talk about, you know, courts, judges and democracy as we see what the courts did both in Wisconsin and in Texas, mm -hmm. striking down these photo ID laws for voter ID and sort of making sure that people can vote. Uh, and that's really important. That's a great example of what the courts do uh, at a lower level. I think a lot of times the attention's at the Supreme Court and mm -hmm. rightfully so. But there's so much important work uh, that goes on at the district courts and circuit courts. And so what I try to spend a lot of time doing is trying to explain to people why the courts matter, whether it's voting rights, environmental rights, workers' rights, immigrant rights, women's rights, sort of anything that we think of when it comes to expanding democracy and our ability to fully and meaningfully participate, uh, the courts have an essential role. And I think it's important for all of us who care about these issues to really educate ourselves about the courts and get engaged. So, you know, this year, um, there's a certain presidential candidate, uh, Donald Trump, who has kind of brought the issue of the courts to the forefront in a, in a way that um, I think people from both sides of the aisle really spoke out about. So, you know, earlier in the year, you saw attacks on um, a federal judge who was of Mexican um, heritage and this question that he couldn't be fair because of his Mexican heritage. And in particular, he couldn't be fair to Donald Trump for one of his thousands of lawsuits that he often brings. Um, as someone who has worked on the issues, particularly around judicial diversity, that really affected me in a in a real way. And I wonder kind of what was your response as that was happening with Judge Curell? 
Absolutely. I think that when I worked in the White House for a little more than six years on judicial nominations, one of the most important things I did was implement the president's directive to make sure that our federal judiciary reflects the nation that it serves. And that's about bringing diversity to the courts. And a lot of it is demographic diversity, sort of racial, gender, sexual orientation, uh, but also experiential diversity, people mm -hmm. from different backgrounds, people from legal, different legal experiences. Uh, and the importance of that is not necessarily that people will rule differently, but that as as you start to have any representative part of your government uh, look like America, you're going to have more faith and more confidence mm -hmm. in the credibility of the judicial system. And so I think that's so important. And then to have uh, have a presidential candidate suggest that that very diversity that is, in fact, making our democracy stronger um, inherently means that a judge can't be fair, right. I think, is such a disservice to the entire institution. Mm -hmm. uh, and then more than that, it's an incredible disservice to Judge Curio, mm -hmm. who I had the opportunity to get to know through the confirmation process. Mm -hmm. He grew up not too far from me in northwest Indiana. Uh, mm -hmm. He went on to be a well, uh, a well-regarded prosecutor who literally put his life on the line. Mm -hmm. uh, and for his integrity and his impartiality to be questioned just because uh, just because anybody, more or less mm -hmm. a presidential candidate, disagreed with the ruling is really beyond the pale and goes to the integrity of the entire system. Why do we often find that these questions of um, you often hear as kind of underlying these conversations that somehow by saying we care about diversity, we're in some way diminishing quality or aptitude. And it is this troubling kind of a Association that because we say that we want a more reflective judiciary or even um, around issues of our democracy and our elected officials, because that's something we're pushed for, people often say, well, you're diminishing fairness or um, ability. And, 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 and I, frankly, it, it pisses me off to no end. But, you know, I don't know how you feel about it, but that's where I am. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is remarkable, the notion that, that if you're a person of color or if you're a woman, uh, or if you're openly gay or lesbian, somehow you're less qualified mm -hmm. is uh, astounding. But that's really what the implication is. The implication yeah. is that white men are more qualified and therefore any any effort at increasing diversity inherently means that you're getting less qualified candidates, less qualified judges. And I can tell you that having worked on hundreds of judicial nominations, that's absolutely not the case, that these are really the highest quality, highest caliber people uh, okay. that we're putting on and that there's no indication that you're sacrificing quality or competency or integrity at all. Um, one of the highlights of my professional career was definitely working on the nomination of Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Um, and I think a lot of times we look at the Supreme Court as the only kind of idea um, that most people have around courts. And just being able to have some very small part in that nomination. But then when she authors such stinging dissents as the one she did this year on Fourth Amendment issues and talked about um, issues that as an African-American woman I deal with, the double consciousness, and you see her quoting W.E.B. Du Bois, the power of someone being able to both articulate um, and in some way see my identity and, and connect it to these issues was just such a powerful moment for me, both professionally, to see that and then just affirming kind of my identity. Absolutely. And I think that, look, the law is the law, and judges are always going to apply the facts to the law. Uh, but your personal experiences 
do affect how you see that. And I think mm-hmm. that the cases you cite and Justice Sotomayor's opinion are a great recent example. Uh, the other one that's often talked about is Justice Ginsburg in mm-hmm. the case of a strip search of a high school girl, mm-hmm. where at the time she was the only woman uh, judge on, justice right. on the court. Uh, and nobody else got it. Nobody else sort of got the the shame and the sort of what goes through a young high school girl's mind when being asked to strip search and from their perspective. And look, I'll tell you, as a guy, it's a lot different to be in a locker room (laughs) than, you know, for a girl, especially at that age. And like to not have that sort of inherent understanding, this personal lived in experience um, that, again, the facts were the same. The laws were the same. But as she brought her personal experience to bear, uh, she changed a lot of minds, not only on how the case was decided, but really in how it's talked about. And really a lot about justice is not only in the decisions, but Mm. it's how you discuss them and how you frame them and how you really have the rulings resonate with the American people so that they really understand and respect the decisions when they come out. And they get it, and and it's connected to them. If you are just joining the Leslie Marshall Show, this is Michelle Jawando here on the Leslie Marshall Show in studio with my guest, Christopher Kang, National Director of the National Council of Asian Pacific Americans. We'll be right back after the break finishing our conversation, learning a little bit more about what Chris has in store, and maybe giving a preview of tonight's big speech from uh, presumptive GOP nominee uh, Donald J. Trump. This is Michelle Jawando on The Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be right back after the break. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back. Welcome back. This is Michelle Jawando. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. I um, always love being here and love to hear from you. Go ahead and give us a call at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. You can find us on Twitter at Leslie Marshall or at Michelle Jawando. Happy to have back in studio with me Christopher Kang, who's the National Director of the National Council of Asian Pacific Americans. Um, so, Chris, our listeners may not be as familiar with our organ, your organization. Why don't you really tell us kind of um, what you're doing, um, how this organization came to be, and really some of the big challenges that you see as we move into the last few months of the year? Yeah, thanks so much. The National Council of Asian Pacific Americans is a coalition of 35 national Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander organizations. And what we try to do is provide a a bigger platform and a a broader base for us to get our message out, whether it's in the halls of Congress, within the administration, or in the media, to try to raise the needs and concerns of the Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander community. I think one of the biggest challenges we have is the sort of model minority myth that Mm -hmm. Asian Americans that on 
average. If you look at the census data, we may be uh, highly educated and have a high median income. But what does that actually mean? And what does that actually mean for your average Asian American Pacific Islander uh, walking down the street? Uh, and really, how does that capture the fact that there are actually 50 different ethnicities? And we're very different. Uh, this sort of category of AAPI is a made-up census category uh, <laughs> that uh, that obscures a lot of the yes, needs census, that we, we have. just threw shade at you, just so you know. Thanks. Uh, you know, and that is part of it, right? Is trying to figure out the different the different needs of our communities while also finding that political collective power that what mm-hmm. you know there is something that does bind us together mm-hmm. uh, and unify us, and try to figure out how it is that we can get our voice out so that people understand that we have actual uh, important needs and concerns that mm-hmm. Pacific Islanders have one of the highest long-term unemployment rates, or mm-hmm. that the rate of poverty uh, coming out of the Great Recession uh, increased more for APIs than for other communities. I think there's this mm-hmm. assumption because on average we're doing better that overall we're doing better. And one, that's not true. But then two, really the problem is from a broader perspective, it ends up creating a wedge between Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders and other communities of color. Mm -hmm. This very notion that if we're a model minority, then who are the not model minorities? Mm -hmm. And why Mm -hmm. aren't they model minorities? And it's just not... I, there's so much the, to unpack there, but right, really, right. like, for us... We'll do another show. Right? <laughs> uh, I think for us, though, like, it's about standing up for the importance of affirmative action mm-hmm. in higher education because it benefits Asian Americans uh, in every possible way, mm-hmm. um, but also because we refuse to be used as a wedge for mm-hmm. other people to sort of pick out, as Justice Alito tried to in his dissent in, yeah. in Fisher versus Texas, and say, well, look at Asian Americans. Well, yeah, look at Asian Americans, and then look at how we actually benefit from affirmative action action in higher education, and don't try to use us as a wedge against African Americans and Hispanic communities. Mm-hmm. Um, that was such a powerful um, piece, and I think especially as we even see coming in the coming term, there's this case coming out of Harvard University around the issues of affirmative action, and there's like a number of Asian American plaintiffs that are being used, so to speak, from the same kind of actor who's continually tried to attack affirmative action. So appreciate the power um, and the passion it's it's so clear in you being able to articulate these issues Um, and I think in some ways kind of do away with what I say others try to create these kind of divisions because they recognize if we can minimize everyone's power and kind of separate different communities against one another, then some people will keep power and other people won't. Um, and I think, you know, you rightly calling it out, the kind of the divisions and who's a model and who's not, I think speaks to that in a real powerful way. And I just I appreciate you for even being able to say that today. Yeah, well, I, absolutely. And I think that that's the important part of the the narrative here that mm-hmm. Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders have to get out. And that's why in response to a recent, uh, the latest filing against Brown, Dartmouth, and I think Princeton, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in response to that, 150 Asian American and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander organizations joined an open letter declaring our support for affirmative action in higher education. Because again, it benefits us both the, in particular, Southeast Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander communities that mm-hmm. don't have as high a level of high school graduation or mm-hmm. college graduation, but also just the very fact that going to school in a diverse 
institution with diverse students make, gives you a better, well-rounded education. For everybody. For everybody. Right. And sort of making those points clear that, that there's a great benefit, there's been historical benefit, continues to be benefit, and that we as Asian Americans, look, there's clearly a divide within our community, but I don't think the divide is even told. I think mm. the only story that comes out is that we oppose affirmative action as a community, and that's absolutely wrong. And I'll also say that you look at the polling of the Asian American community, mm-hmm. and 75 to 80 percent of people of Asian Americans actually support affirmative action in higher education. So yeah. we're yeah. sort of using organizations like mine to help lift up that important voice and that important side of the conversation so that uh, everybody knows that, that we're here for all communities of color. So we are coming to you live on the final night of the Republican National uh, Committee holding their debate in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, Tonight, Donald J. Trump will officially accept the nomination. Next week, we have the Democratic uh, nomination um, convention taking place in Philadelphia. This has been a a pretty intense week, I think, all around in the news. I often think that because we we have spent so much focus talking federally and about the presidential elections that we miss that there are often kind of um, local and state elected officials who are trying to kind of get out a message and trying to like let people know that they even exist. Um, I know that there are so many issues that we should be talking about around education, but we spend a lot of time talking about speeches and not that that's not important, right? It is important for us to know, but there are so many other issues that we should be talking about and so much of our time and attention is just all politics all the time. So I'm talking about politics, but I want you to tell me outside of kind of the stuff that you're seeing um, in in Cleveland, Ohio right now, what are the two or three big things that are like keeping you up, that are moving your organization, that you're trying to get people aware of before November? Maybe you tie your some of your work on voting rights to the upcoming election. But what what should our listeners hear and know about um, from some of the great work that you're doing? Yeah, so uh, so my organization is a nonprofit organization. We don't take sides, mm-hmm. uh, and it's ne- neither do most of the organizations that are a part of our coalition. Uh, so we do a lot of work trying to educate both sides on the mm-hmm. issues of importance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the biggest ones is immigration reform, mm. and how do we really move the ball in a way that helps uh, helps strengthen this country through immigration? And I think part of it is this overall frame, this overall just. It's hard to believe that we're in a space right now where we have to talk about valuing the contributions of immigrants. Oh, my gosh. Subgroups? Right? Subgroups, subgroups right? Uh, Hashtag subgroups. This notion that, that perhaps uh, subgroups are not contributing to, to civilization is, is remarkable from anybody, more or less a, a sitting member of Congress. Right. Um, but, you know, like, how is it that we can have this conversation to really respect the, the contributions and the history uh, of our country and the diversity that makes us stronger, not weaker. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then how do we push toward an actual solution here, a solution that doesn't involve building walls and Mm -hmm. deporting 11 million people? Uh, And then from the Asian American community, like, how do you lift up the fact that I think most people are surprised that out of that 11 million undocumented people, you know, 1.5 million are Asian American. Mm -hmm. Again, this Mm -hmm. part of this, you know, model minority myth, perhaps, that um, that the Asian American community is not uh, undocumented. Um, Or it's just the fact that whenever people talk about immigration, it's only about the Hispanic community, the Latino community, when in fact, 
right now uh, more immigrants are coming from Asia Asia. than from from Latin American communities. And so we're really trying to push that out. And then how do you tie that to our civic engagement, why it's important for people to get out there and vote? If these are issues that are important to you, then you need to register and vote. Uh, And then you need to go vote for the candidate who best reflects your values in November. So, Chris, you gave me like two different ideas for an upcoming show so you're gonna have to come back you just have to say yes um and if you miss the conversation i hope you stay put because we will be back with christopher kang national director national director of the national council of asian pacific americans he's been our guest for the last 30 minutes in studio it's been great this is michelle jawando on the leslie marshall show we'll be back next week stay safe and we'll see you soon